One of the great things about hosting a podcast about books that features a new episode every week is that in the beginning of each season, I don't know where my reading journey will take me, but I'm game for the mystery. Joining Book of the Month is kind of the same thing. You know you're heading into new territory, and it's going to be an adventure. Book of the Month is a subscription that helps readers discover new books and helps writers by promoting emerging authors alongside established ones. Here's how it works. Each month, Book of the Month members get to choose from a curated selection of new and early release books. Your pick gets shipped right to your door, and shipping is always free. There's so much excitement knowing that one of your picks just might be that next book to make it into your top 10 most favorite books ever list. And if you like to listen to your books, there are options for you. Book of the Month just launched a curated audiobook option, and you can listen to your selection directly in the app. Here's what's in store for March. Annie Bott by Sierra Greer. Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez, plus several other titles. I chose the memoir Hereafter by Amy Lynn because I'm interested in how people deal with grief and bring their insights to the page. For a limited time, you can get your first book of the month for just $9.99 using the code CHIRP. You can sign up at bookofthemonth.com. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype is Lily Tuck, author of seven novels, including I Married You for Happiness, The Woman Who Walked on Water, and The News from Paraguay, a National Book Award winner. She has also written two short story collections and a biography. Her latest novel, Sisters, tells the story from the point of view of the unnamed narrator, who is a second wife obsessed with her husband's first wife. The narrator is clearly haunted and jealous and consumed by her imaginings of the woman who came before her. We began the discussion focusing on the impetus for the novel. The idea came really fast, and um, also I wrote it very fast. I wrote the novel very fast. It's very short. But um, I was reading um, Christopher Nicholson, no relation to the other Nicholsons, fictionalized novel about Thomas Hardy's last years. And Thomas Hardy apparently was famously mean to his second wife, and he was also mean to his first wife, but um, he would drag the second wife, I forget her name, Florence, I think, um, to the grave of the first wife, uh, you know, on her birthday and on the anniversary of her death. And, you know, poor Florence had to go there. He also wrote love poems to the first wife. And um, there's a sentence in the novel, in Nicholson's novel, that says, first and second wives are like sisters. And that just rang this huge bell in my head. And I thought, I've got to write that. So that's how it came about. And it's not at all autobiographical. Um, I've been both a first wife and a second wife, but um, it really isn't autobiographical. And I don't think I I use my experience at all, at all. The only thing I use, um, and I wrote a piece for Vogue, um, which will be out um, sometime, I think, in October. And the only sort of autobiographical detail, and I 
write about this in Vogue is um, that I give um, the first wife this really pretty silver expensive suit that I have because I wanted her to look good. Basically, this is almost like it's it's fiction, but it almost reads as this tiny memoir from this um, second wife where she's writing her thoughts about the first wife, her jealousies, her insecurities, and little facts. And we never learn the name of the second wife no. and or the first wife. Is she writing this from a point of jealousy? Is she haunted? Is she amazed, obsessed? Like, how would you describe her mental state? I think she is obsessed, probably jealous. And, um, you know, she wonders whether the first wife was prettier, more intelligent, better in bed, all of that. And I think that's normal. I mean, I think um, second, third wives or whoever um, are tend to be obsessed with the previous wife. I think it depends also so much on the circumstances. In my case, I don't think I was that obsessed with my husband's second wife. I mean, we we both wanted to get divorced. It's interesting, though, this idea of, you know, saying that you're not related because you're not really related to your husband either. You know, there's no blood ties when you marry someone. And she's married to this guy and she's helping to raise his kids. And, and she has a pretty good relationship with the kids. I mean, things get a little weird there. But um, so it's like she does have these possessions in a way that the first wife had that she is now entrusted to care for. You know, the way I write, I stay very, very much on the surface of stuff. And I don't sort of go into the psychology of my characters at all, at all, at all. I just kind of, you know, just, I don't know exactly how to describe it, but I, I really stay on the surface of stuff. And I just feel that the actions speak for themselves and I don't have to explain anything. So that sounds like a really conscious choice. I've always done that in all my books, yeah. Is that because you're thinking about the reader's muscular role as a reader, or it's just what you prefer? It's just the way I write, I think. I took lots of courses with Gordon Lish, sort of famous captain fiction, who is fairly controversial and who was Raymond Carver's editor. And um, he was very, very adamant about writers staying on the surface and not explaining. And I think I learned that lesson. <laughs> You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Lily Tuck, author of the novel Sisters. So one of the things you have throughout this is you have a few different tropes. One of them is Michelangelo's David, which comes up a few times. You have piano playing. And in the very beginning, you talk about her nose, like that it's a Grecian nose, that it's like Michelangelo's David. This is the the second wife talking about the first wife. And then on the next page, and she's talking about it, and she's saying, you know, this woman is blonde, and she has this nose. And then the next page, you say, according to Wikipedia, Michelangelo's David is 5.16 meters, or nearly 17 feet tall, and weighs 5,660 kilos, or 12,478.12 pounds. And then you just go on, and you don't explain that. And when I read that, my heart dropped a little bit, because I was thinking about the weight, like the physical weight of David in relation to this first wife and the metaphor of it. 
but maybe you weren't thinking about the metaphor of it. No, I wasn't thinking about that at all. Um, I was just, um, it, I, I like to digress. I mean, again, Seabold is a huge influence. I like to digress. I like to sort of throw in facts like the the stuff about Michelangelo. I also have the same thing when she's wearing clogs. I say something about um, the different kinds of wood that are used to make clogs. I mean, sort of stuff that is not really integral to the novel, but digressions that, that I use. I can't really explain why I do that, but I like doing that. And I think it it's a little bit jarring maybe, but I think it sort of adds something. It's very hard to explain one's process, I think. I do a lot of digressions. The publishing industry is a system. Books are mirrors in people's experiences. And in season two of Missing Pages, We'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial. She was in pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't worldproof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts. I would think that when you do digressions, it would be something that still in the end have to add up to a whole. Are the digressions something that come up with your editor that you have to really talk about or not? No, and this book wasn't edited at all. I mean, it just, as I said, I wrote it very, very quickly. I think I, it took me two months to write it, six weeks, two months, and I just handed it in, and it was pretty much fine. I mean, maybe there were a couple of um, copy editing grammar things, but aside from that, my editor made no changes. And actually, I'm really happy that they published it because it's so short and that they, they're not calling it a novella. And also at the beginning, they were going to add some short stories, but then they decided that it was best to stand alone. And I agree. Is that a common experience for you with your editor? Again, because of Gordon Lish, um, I write very slowly. If I write a paragraph a day, I'm very, very happy. Um, so I edit as I go. I don't write and then go back and edit a million times. Pretty much what I write is, is the finished thing. You know, maybe I'll go back and change something. Again, I don't really edit very much. I mean, I edit as I go along in my head. Um, and every sentence has to be as good as I can make it at the time and the next sentence, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I don't just write five pages and think I'll go back and edit it. So your character, in some ways, she she edited herself in the sense that she chose certain things to tell her husband and not. For example, she never told him about her past loves. And he never asked, but it was something she was curious with him. Yeah, I mean, I think people are normally curious about other people's love lives. Um, like the Carly Simon song that I mentioned where uh, she regrets that James Taylor, you know, that they discussed their previous lo loves. And 
on a personal level, I think it's a mistake to tell everything. Um, I don't know how you feel, but um, I think it's it's best not to discuss past loves to present lovers or husbands or whoever. I think it's best to keep quiet about it all. And do you think the husband just sort of knew that and that's why he didn't ask? Or do you think he just didn't care? I think he probably didn't care all that much, no. The husband is kind of a profligate and um, he's probably had lots of affairs and stuff, so... I feel like, though, in in, a, in some way, this is a portrait of a woman who was kind of slowly going a little crazy because she couldn't handle the existence of the first wife. I d- I'm not sure I agree with you. I don't think she's going crazy. I think she is overly obsessed, yes. But when they finally divorce, then I feel that she's sort of back on track and she wants to meet the wife and she wants to listen to her play the Chopin concerto i mean she's sort of um and she's not going to kill her or do anything egregious um she's just wants to be friends with her so maybe that sounds strange but i think people get obsessed with stuff that doesn't necessarily make them crazy yeah and maybe that obsession is just what led to some of her um behavior she got together with her husband when he was still married but they weren't getting along so you know she she felt she didn't feel that guilty about it because i think as i wrote in the book um they hadn't slept together in months and um she had refused to come to the dinner party where the husband and second wife met so clearly their marriage was on the rocks or nearly on the rocks so what was in, in your novel the, the the stepmother's relationship to how would you describe the, her relationship with her stepson um i think she you know she made a real effort to mainly to have the children like her i mean i've been a stepmother as well and i think all of that is kind of hard and um it takes a while for um, to have a relationship with your stepchildren who usually resent you horribly. And so um, I think she had a pretty good relationship with the son and with the daughter as well. Yeah, but I mean, it probably took time, but I don't go into the details of the time it takes or anything. Clearly, she says that at the beginning it wasn't working out terribly well because she was being not lenient, but not being um, true to herself about it. But then as she got more and more relaxed with the children, their relationship got better. I think that's all sort of true to life, I think. I think most stepmothers um, experience that kind of thing. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Lily Tuck, author of the novel Sisters. One of the things you mentioned in the beginning, which I thought was really interesting, especially given that the name is Sisters, but you're talking about how in the old days, it was not unusual for a man to marry his dead wife's sister, that often she came to care for the kids and the husband. Um, And at one point, there was a law against it. Right, right. and the law stayed in effect till, I think, 1911 or something like that. Yeah, and it's interesting because Margaret Drabble just wrote a novel called The Dark Flood Rises, and one of her characters is uh, doing research exactly on this sororate, I don't know how you pronounce it, um, type of marriage where um, the husband marries the sisters. And you can see how it happens. The spinster sister comes in after the wife dies and helps out with the children and becomes indispensable. And the husband marries her. 
When you write, because you, you're staying on the surface, do you think about your reader? No, I don't. I don't really. It's funny. I was just thinking about that the other day. Um, I used to think about a, the reader or a single reader. I used to think, uh, you know, I wanted to write for Gordon Lish when I was studying for him. Then um, I had a couple of stories in The New Yorker and um, Roger Angel was my editor and I wrote for him for a long time. But now I don't really write for anyone. No, for myself, I think. I mean, I hope, certainly hope the reader likes my books. hope the critics like my book. I hope, you know, everybody likes my work. But I don't really write for anyone, no. Do you no. go on book tours? Not so much. I, I hate, I'm really a very private, I'm too old to be shy, but I'm definitely an introvert. And um, I don't like public speaking. I'm probably, I feel like I'm, quite inarticulate. I'm probably sounding incredibly inarticulate on this interview. Also, English is my third language, so maybe that's part of it. I don't like doing readings at all, and I used to do readings for earlier books, and for this book, I'm just doing one reading in my neighborhood bookstore, which I like a lot, and I like the people who work there, and I actually used to work there as well, but I like going to festivals. I like being on panels, um, but um, actual readings, no. What are your other two languages? Well, I was born in France. I was French until the age of nine. So French is my first language. And then as a child, um, I lived in Peru, South America. So um, I learned Spanish, which unfortunately I've sort of forgotten. But um, so those were my first two languages, yeah. And then I learned English when I came to New York when I was nine. How do you think those experiences of being in other cultures shaped you? Um, I think they have shaped me. I think they've shaped my writing, um, definitely living in different countries, also moving around a lot, being an only child, being fairly solitary, um, having to sort of use my imagination to entertain myself because uh, I went to different schools um, and never had sort of close friends because, again, we moved so much. Um, so I think that definitely has shaped my writing. I think um, a lot of my characters are sort of women who are unmoored or un, um, who are displaced, um, who are not homeless, but don't have necessarily a place in the world. Did you feel like being an only child really contributed to your imaginary life? Yes, definitely, definitely. Did you write as a kid? You, how did you manifest your, your aloneness? I, I always wanted to be a writer, definitely. Um, and I think I started a novel when I was nine, a novel about a horse. And the story I tell, which is probably apocryphal, um, I was on a train once on from New York to Ithaca, New York, to visit my grandmother. It was an overnight train. I went to the breakfast car. I was nine or 10 or something. And um, I was seated next to or across from a man and the man with a very, very heavy accent, which I couldn't place. And um, the man asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. And he and I said, I wanted to be a writer. And um, he said, oh, that's interesting. I'm a writer, too. And then he wrote his name down on a piece of paper and his 
phone number or address or whatever, no email at the time, certainly. Um, and he said, well, when you've written something, get in touch with me. And I was so happy, so excited. Got off the train, told my grandmother about um, who was meeting me up. I told my grandmother about the man on the train and showed her the piece of paper, which she immediately took, ripped it in half and threw in the garbage. And to this day, I think it probably was Vladimir Nabokov because he was teaching at Cornell at the time. So, but, you know, I don't know. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Lily Tuck, author of the novel Sisters. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yeah, she's one of my favorite writers, Penelope Fitzgerald. And um, I'm going to read the very beginning of the, the Blue Flower. I just think it's an amazing beginning because she just starts right then. I mean, in a, such an unobvious place to start a novel. And the chapter is called Wash Day. And it's about Novalis, the philosopher. Um, who died very, very young and who fell madly in love with a 14-year-old girl in this sort of obsessive way. Jacob Gietmaler was not such a fool that he could not see that they had arrived at his friend's house on the wash day. They should not have arrived anywhere, certainly not at this great house, the largest but two in Weisenfeld at such a time. Dietmaler's own mother supervised the washing three times a year. Therefore, the household had linen and white underwear for four months only. He himself possessed 89 shirts, no more. But here, at the Hardenburg house in Klostergasse, he could tell from the great dingy snowfalls of sheets, pillowcases, bolster cases, vests, bodices, drawers, from the upper windows into the courtyard, where grave-looking servants, both men and women, were receiving them into giant baskets that they washed only once a year. This might not mean wealth. In fact, he knew that in this case it didn't, but it was certainly an indication of long-standing. A numerous family also, the underwear of children and young persons, as well as the larger sizes, fluttered through the air as though the children themselves had taken to flight. I mean, I think this is an amazing way to begin a book, you know, showing a family's dirty laundry being thrown out the window. And um, it also speaks so much about the domestic life of the 19th century. Her prose, I think, is fantastic. One critic called it something like a needle straight into the heart. I mean, it's very spare. It's very... It's, it's very graceful. It's very unexpected, I think. Can you read something that you wrote? Maybe it changed a lot for the first, from the first draft or was tricky to write or something you're really happy with now? Well, um, as I said, I, I, you know, I don't change that much. I'll, I'll read the beginning when we first see the first wife, the narrator first sees her. And um, the first wife is always, she has no name, and um, she's always referred to as she. In one of the photos I saw of her as a young woman, she is pushing a baby carriage, an old-fashioned big black baby carriage, down the city street in Paris. The street is shaded by large chestnut trees, 
And in addition to pu pushing the, the carriage, she's holding a little dog on a leash. The dog, a white and black terrier, is straining at the leash. Heal, she could be telling the dog. Heal, damn it. But the dog pays her no attention. She didn't like dogs much, my husband once told me. She liked cats. I hate cats, he adds. I love dogs, I told my husband. At first, I'd pictured pictured her in a house full of cats, cats everywhere, cats stretched out on the sofa, on the chairs, lying on top of the kitchen table, sitting on the windowsill, licking themselves clean, eating from bowls on the floor, a mess. I was reminded of the book I just read about poor Camille Claudel, Rodin's discarded mistress, made mad by neglect and poverty. Her apartment on the Quai Bourbon in Paris, a home for feral cats. Does your mother have a cat? I asked her son once. Hi, his pupils dark and dilated, he laughed. Meow, meow. I asked her daughter the same thing. She had two, Simone and Nelson. Unfortunately, Nelson, named for Nelson Algren, died last week. She's still very upset. Nelson Algren famously wrote, never sleep with a woman whose troubles are worse than your own. So, there. So tell me about why you chose this. It just was the beginning of um, and introducing the, the, the first wife. Where do you write? Well, where I am right now in this hot little room, New York is very hot. I have a studio in my apartment. Earlier when I um, many children and a dog and a husband. Um, I used to rent a room somewhere, somebody's maid's room, or for seven years, actually, this makes me laugh, um, I rented a room in a seedy hotel, and um, the room cost, I think, $300 a month. And during that those seven years, I was working on a novel that, in retrospect, thank God, it never got published. But anyway, um, during those seven years, I finally um, sold one story and got paid $30. So you can do the math about seven years at $300 a month. <laughs> but now I, I work at home. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Well, I don't really want to get away from writing. I love to write. I mean, that's sort of my life, my family and, and writing are my life. I don't really want to get away. Um, I do go to the Caribbean for a week um, every year, and usually I don't write there. I read. Um, that's about it. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Um, I used to show my work to um, my editor at The New Yorker, not Roger Angel, but um, somebody else, Francis Kiernan. And, um, but I show... I don't show my work as much anymore. I didn't show this book to anyone. Um, I have a very a good writer friend who I met um, 30, 40 years ago at the McDowell Colony, um, Michelle Hunnevin, and I show her my work. But um, I don't believe in showing a lot of people your work. I think then you just get too many disparate kind of comments, and it's not particularly useful. So I don't show my work that much, no. How have you dealt with rejection? Well, I think the way everybody does, um, you know, sorrowfully, um, as I said, I wrote this first novel. Um, I spent almost 10 years working it and reworking it, and I had two different agents for it, and lots of comments and criticism and editing, and um, 
it, it was a real blow at the time that it never got published. But as I said, now I'm, I'm glad it wasn't published because I don't think it really worked. And I and I'm I still get rejected. I send stories to, to the New Yorker and they're rejected and end up somewhere else. Um, and that's a disappointment. But um, I think you just move on. You move on. It doesn't matter that much. And basically, I feel that I'm old enough so that I can just write what I want. So, And that's what I'm doing. And what is your favorite word? Uh-huh. Uh, I, I was away for the weekend, and we were talking with friends, trying to decide what a favorite word was. Um, and I came up with calliope. Yeah, calliope. I like calliope. But I also like, you know, I think foreign words are sort of more melodious. I like manana, I like dasvidanya, I like metaphora, I like crepuscule. But um, in English, um, certainly calliope is a really pretty word, I think. And she's also the muse of poetry, so it's, um, it's, it works out. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me via Skype was Lily Tuck, author of the novel Sisters. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.